Welcome to this week's episode of Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wu, with my co-host, Michael Brandt. And let's dive into it. I'm really excited to have Jeff Browning on with us this week. And in terms of human performance, I think ultra runners, folks that run, you know, that, that really look at a marathon as almost a warm-up, so 50, 100-mile runs as some of the most interesting specimens of human performance. And we have one of the premier ultra runners with us today. Um, please introduce yourself. Uh, glad to be on the show. Jeff Browning, um, ultra runner, uh, athlete, coach, uh, and uh, I'm getting up there in age, 45 years old, um, dad of three kids. Um, yeah, live in Bend, Oregon. Yeah. Awesome. I think one thing that I've come to see as a, as a pattern, I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on this, is that a lot of ultra marathoners, or at least the, a few handful that I've spoken to, um, they all have pretty extreme habits. And I think a couple that, 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 that come to mind have started off with uh, drug addiction and, 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 and approached running as a way to that channel that, that addiction to something positive and meaningful. Uh, I'm curious, you know, how does one go from, hey, you know, running 25 miles is not enough. I want to run 100 miles. Like, what is your story getting into the ultra marathon space? I, I mean, I had this, well, I realized that when I wanted to run this 100, I was like, well, I got to run, I, if I'm going to run 100, I, I, I got to run a marathon. Then I got to run a 50K. And then I've got to like do a, I, I found out that you had to get in a lottery and there was a, you know, you had to qualify <laughs> with a 50 mile race back then. Now it's a 100K race. Right. But, you know, it was, I was like, it was a year and a half out before I could even get to the start line. And it wasn't one of the, and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it didn't, it, I'm very impatient. And so just by nature, I wanted to just go do it. Right. right. Once I had it in my head, I was like, I don't want to wait, but it was the best thing that ever happened because that, that meant I had to pre prepare for 18 months right. and in run like a couple 50 K's and deal with a couple injuries, overuse injuries and learning to train for that distance coming from a cycling background and then um so i hadn't pounded a ton you know i've always been a runner i've always like you know run, run my dog for 20 30 minutes three days a week or four days a week or that yeah. kind of stuff you know and then a lot of cycling so that that kind of how i kind of that whole build up to that 100 miler that i ran in 2002 i ran western states in 2002 you know i ran like three 50ks a 50 miler and a 100k before i even showed up at the start line and that put, set me up for success in a 100-miler because I had experience. You know, I had probably four or five races under my belt and a lot of big tra day, training, training days in the mountains leading up to that. Wow. So basically within, yeah, I mean, it seems like within 18 months, you basically went from being like a, a casual jogger, right? If you're just running your dog yeah. <laughs> 20, 30 minutes, three times a week, that's just like walking a dog type of a, but I guess you were athletic through cycling, et cetera. But from a running perspective, you went from, level one casual to like one of the most extreme athletes so for the first few races you had hit the 100 mile mark when did it become hey i'm not gonna just it's not just a bucket list item i'm gonna make a career i'm gonna be a competitive 100 miler ultra marathoner it still it came kind of like uh slowly because like in that whole time i started to get connected to like the ultra running community and that's what most people are attracted to when you become an ultra runner it's this like little tribe. Yeah, it's a rare and, club. And so, yeah, it's kind of this exclusive little like, you know, nomadic 
tribe that goes around to all these cool mountain towns and does races in the mountains and like everybody's connected and says oh you know they like to be in the you know running dirt and and running primal and and so like i was attracted to that deep rich community that was part of it and it kept me you know kind of like doing these races and then when i finally like showed up at the start line at western states 100 in 2002 i kind of it kind of became like i was scared <laughs> to do a hundred miles. But after I did it, by the time I finished, I was like, Oh, that really hurt painful. But I knew immediately it was such a big thing that I would do it again. <laughs> okay. So you were, what, what were you doing every day? Like you were just running 20, 30, 20, 30 miles every morning. No, it's, um, most ultra running is a lot like marathon training. So it's like maintenance runs during the week and then one long run a week, Okay. but you're just doing it on like more specific mountain terrain instead of like running roads. So, a lot more elevation, you might be out longer. Um, and then a every once in a while you're doing back-to-backs and that kind of thing. But I also was running, coming from a cycling background, I was running maybe four days a week. And then I was cross-training on my bike. Right. And I found if I went over four days a week, I'd break down and I'd get injured. Yeah. So, you know, I had not been like, besides a little bit of running and all the sports in high school of running, I, I hadn't really been pounding, at least in my 20s. I'd gone, I'd been on a bike mostly. So non-weight bearing. Yeah. So, there's an adaptation phase that has to happen when you're coming from no pounding to pounding and cycling also develops a little bit of a muscle imbalance when it comes to running. You know, you, you tend to really overwork your upper quads and your hamstrings in a cycling motion of pulling on. Once you learn to spin really well and, and actually be pulling on the backstroke of the, of the bike. So I had to work that out and it didn't, that 03 and 04 were really frustrating. I, I was able to race in 04 and I got like fifth at Wasatch 100 and I was kind of still like, I realized that hundreds were kind of my, the longer it got, the better I got. Hmm. And so I realized that that was kind of the distance was the longer distances for me. So I wanted to focus on those, but I was having trouble getting injured every time I try to get up and build up to one of those. So I, I worked with a strength training coach. That's yeah, what, when I brought. What were, what were some of the tools and ways that you had of measuring? Like you have this intuition around how your body is composed for cycling, but it's not optimal for running. What were you using any, any tools or what were you working on with your trainers to have that, just that awareness of your, of your physiology? It was a synergy of like, I changed my diet which made me healthier and build muscle mass back. And then I strength trained like crazy. And then I also started, got a hold of, uh, chi running. And so just working on running, I started looking at running form. Like I started thinking about like, okay, I'm getting injured a lot. And it's like, it was like knee tracking and it band syndrome and all these other things. And I, I was like, okay, what's going on. I started looking at the biomechanics of running and thinking about it from a, from a physiological standpoint. And like, is, you know, we look at every other sport and it's like cycling or like mountain biking or skiing or whatever it is, Nordic skiing, it's all technique based, right? You, you learn how to do that sport. There's a technique to it and you fine tune that technique and get better at it. Whereas most people just go run, right? They step out the door, they put on shoes. It's very approachable. That's what's cool about it. But you just go out the door and you don't, you don't really think about the proper way to run. So you self-studied. A lot of right. like the proper running techniques. Cause I think... and, and, and it's really changed in the last, say, five, six years. People are talking about good form running. There's all these little clinics that right. running stores put on. But back then, like the only thing I could find was like chi running. And I found this thing and I was like, okay. I worked on cadence. I worked on like, you know, paw back and, you know, pawing your foot and heel back and, and kind of running circles like you would on a bike. And right. 
and all those little things and leaning from your ankles and you know, arm swing. And I started really working on those and counting steps and cadence all through 05. And, and, and the strength training kind of came together. And, and that, that messed with, I figured out too, I, with this strength training coach, he was like, okay, proper muscle balance is, is your quad to, to hamstring ratio. This is getting geeky, but right. quad to hamstring ratio of strength should be 150% quad strength to, so a one and a half to one right. or ratio of strength to quad imbalance. And I had the opposite. I was one and a half times stronger in my hamstrings than my quads hmm. because you're, you get really strong in your upper quad cycling, but you, 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 your vastus medialis and like the, the muscle that's right above your kneecap, those muscles get, are, are, are less worked compared to the upper quad and your hamstrings are overworked from the pulling. So right. Interesting, you end up, so the pulling, so for cycling, pulling is like actually stronger. So you pull. Well, you, you, you learn to pull on the backstroke right. and bring it back around, right. right? So it's all about being light in your shoes right. and being you know, cycling or spinning circles, but you also are pushing on the upstroke, especially on the top, you know, back one third top of the stroke. Right. As you come over the top, you should be engaging your quad, right? right? Center quad and upper quad. But it, it really doesn't work the vastus medialis a lot. And that's the muscle that's re responsible for proper knee tracking. Huh. So when you're running. Yeah. So th because I was primarily a cyclist for a, a good decade before I got into ultra running, I created muscle imbalances. And then I spent that whole year, like, or off season, like, working on that muscle imbalance. Well, so, it's it like not really muscle imbalance. You're optimizing for a specific use case, and you were basically shifting use cases. So exactly. Let's reoptimize my physiology. Interesting. Totally. And I think, I, and I think, you know, that was around the same time when Born to Run became a popular book, right? I think that's the book a few that years talked after about. That. Yeah. Right. So I think so. You were a Five little bit. Yeah, I think I started reading that book like '07, or I believe. Um, or read that yeah, book. 07, was, So that was yeah. like two or three years after that. So you're a little bit ahead of the curve, but for folks that don't know what I'm t we're talking about here, that was the book with uh, the barefoot running, uh, the, the tribes in, in the, the Tarahumara in right. the, yeah, in the Copper Canyons of Mexico. Right, doing like 100, 200 mile runs. And I think it just brought uh, ultra running you know, more into the public forefront. Is that, is that, would you say that was, that's probably true in sense of like public yeah, perceptions? Yeah, that really Obviously, brought... Yeah, it brought ultra running into the forefront because right. it was bestseller and people were talking. And that's about the time when like barefoot running was like getting popular and we saw this bit major. Bare, the barefoot movement was a big, made the biggest shift in running footwear design that we've seen in 30 years of footwear design, right, right? in running shoes. So it really shifted the bell curve, you know, over to one side and then it kind of got extreme for a while and then it kind of, you know, typical where where the pendulum, pendulum swings, swings way yeah. far to one side and then it comes back well, to we're center. We're seeing a lot less shoot these days. Just a lot less a lot less padding, a lot less a lot more just well, We're seeing less barefoot. heel less heel lift. Yeah. Which that's the thing that came out of the barefoot moment that was really cool is like talking about proper foot function. So like not locking up the arch and big toe. So seeing a straighter line on the arch and big toe in the design of shoes and a little wider toe boxes instead of the narrow kind of Italian dress shoe style <laughs> of running shoe because well, it um, gives them it gives some cushioning like when your toes spread out like that it gives some impact uh it catches some of the impact as opposed to when they're together you have less shock absorption right that's yeah the... and, well what people don't understand when you're run a runner your big toe it naturally just human physiology our big toe is our it's our first point of contact to tell everything up the chain what to do 
So when the big toe touches the ground, it says arch engage, and it stabilizes the foot. That goes up into the Achilles, goes up into the calf, all the way up the chain, and all the way to the brain, and, and says, I need you to not collapse. I need you to like right. land softly. I need you to push off here. So like, it's, it's the first point of contact, and, and it gives the signals. And if you shut off that big toe in a triangle-shaped foot box, you yeah. know, if you look at the front half of your foot, it's basically a square, you know, so, or a rectangle. And we're taught at an early age to not, like, a, a, a triangle, a square doesn't fit in a triangle, right. right? So why are we trying to put a square foot in a triangle shoe? Yeah, it makes uh, total sense. I'm yeah. curious – you know, in parallel, it sounds like your diet and your approach to nutrition has definitely evolved uh, over the years as you become a more and more of an accomplished athlete. Walk us through uh, the thinking behind, well, it seemed like the vegetarianisms didn't necessarily start off from a performance perspective, but I think nowadays, you know, uh, you're, you know, a, a leading proponent around low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets for endurance sports. And that's something that's very interesting to us as biohackers looking at sort of improved cognitive function and endurance function. Yeah, I think um, that evolution um, just kind of came naturally, and, and we're having this more or less this em- science, this fat science is kind of emerging, yeah. right? In the last 10, 15 years, we're really starting to understand, and, you know, the propaganda of the diet heart hypothesis is kind of gone going away. People are in the know, know that that, that the science was is a house of cards. We have a reproducibility problem in nutritional science with all those di- dietary guidelines. Yeah, we were talking to Gary Taubes a few weeks ago. I mean, he definitely. I listened to that podcast. Yeah, actually. yeah, no, that was a good. That was a good conversation. Yeah, and uh, so that you know, if you understand that the politics behind it, then you understand that like there's no reason to fear fat, and and that becomes, you know, uh, this recent change is just for me personally came from like out of more out of like I was exploring and my wife has always been a little hypoglycemic hmm. um, symptoms. So, you know, too many carbs, especially we found over the years, like as we evolved uh, uh, and tweaked diet and, and watched what we ate and what, how certain foods reacted in the system. Like we noticed she was really sensitive to like higher glycemic index foods, especially processed carbohydrates or like, you know, uh, even uh, potatoes and stuff like that. And if she had pretty heavy carb meals three or four times in a row, she'd get a migraine, she'd be down for the count, out of it, have to take a nap type of thing, just come fully on like catatonic, you know. And so we started realizing that it was food related and she'd been dealing with this since she was in probably late high school. And she was a gymnast in college on a scholarship and so there was just this like, like constant carb intake and constant migraines and constant crashing and didn't realize, didn't know what it was. And then she had depression issues in her twenties. And so, and, and all of it was food related. When we look back now, we're like, it's so like, I mean, it's one of the so main clear. inputs into our body, right? Food. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and understanding what, what it does to insulin now yeah. and, you know, and understanding she's probably a little insulin resistant. Did you, did you do uh, glucose monitoring? You do like blood glucose monitoring or continuous glucose mo- monitoring no, implants no, or anything like that? No, we do ketone monitoring okay, yeah. mainly. It's just a breathalyzer. Um, that's the only thing she she realized. She figures out like this has been the best diet for her. You know, doing something of a primal blueprint, paleo blue bulletproof style right. diet. Um, she stays a little more ketogenic than I do. I 
I go cyclically ketogenic. So okay. I, initially to get the fat adaptation and to really optimize your fat metabolism for endurance um, and burn onboard fat and open up that metabolic pathway, you know, yep. we have to we have to restrict carbs to like ketogenic style for a good four weeks yep. to five weeks. And then cyclically around like easier workouts, not working out as hard, and then strategically sneak in carbs around harder workouts. So I'm kind of, my biohack is kind of the Vespa OFM protocol that optimized fat metabolism protocol of, of strategic carbs around hard effort. Still using simple carbs on long run days, still using simple carbs on race day, but just uh, <clears throat> after you've gone through adaptation phase, you're burning a certain percentage of your caloric needs from onboard fat because you've opened up that metabolic pathway. Right. So idea is you're metabolically flexible. I have a carb pathway I can burn if I need to go harder, and I have a fat one that I'm burning as a baseline. You're just shifting that VO2 max out to be able to burn fat at a higher VO2 max when you fat adapted, and then you have a dual fuel source. Right. So you're bonk-proof, and that's the beauty bonk -proof. of it. Bonk-proof. <laughs> and that's the, been the craziest thing about this diet. You still have an Achilles heel of like dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, if you get low on sodium, that kind of thing. Because you're not eating as much per hour. The thing I found too, after adaptation, you really don't have to, my caloric intake per hour in say a race, in a 100 mile race, used to be three to 500 calories an hour. And that's really hard for your body when it's exercising to break that much calorie down. Yep. But otherwise I'd bonk. I would have bonk symptoms. And, and, so bonking and is, for folks that aren't okay. up to speed on the terminology here, is like hitting the wall. So usually for a non-fat adapted athlete, we have 2,000 kilocalories of, uh, of glycogen, our stored glucose, stored carbohydrate. And typically when you basically run out of glucose, our bodies are not fat adapted, you crash. So if you are fat adapted... Uh, you have you start being more efficient in burning body fat as a fuel for fuel for for running. Well, and what was shown in like uh, Jeff Volick's study and the Faster study at University of Connecticut a couple yeah. years ago, and the Faster study was a to give listeners kind of a background was a study on um, twenty uh, endur male endurance elite endurance athletes that were either Ironman triathletes or ultra runners. Um, they were matched in two groups. Uh, one cohort was was ten runners were hot, ba basically around a set sixty to seventy percent carbohydrate diet, a pretty standard endurance diet in in today's athlete. And then there were uh, ten cohorts that were keto adapted. So they had been doing the fat adaptation diet, like in their everyday diet, they'd been eating a high fat, low carb diet. About eighty seventy to eighty percent of their their caloric intake was fat. Right. Um, and they most of them had been doing it for at least six months. Some had been doing it up to five years. Um, so. Those two groups. And that's they super hard to maintain. Uh, yeah. What that? Uh, Eighty percent, like like a real ketogenic diet. I think like one misnomer is that people think it's like easy to eat keto. It's like if you're not like literally eating like sticks of butter or just like just legit trying to pursue fat, it's very hard to get eighty percent fat calories. It's well, not if you're just doing vegetables. If you're eating from a primal list of foods, like in in you're concentrating on, I'd actually kind of respectfully disagree a little bit. Interesting. Because because if you get used to just saying, okay, I, I'm eating vegetables as my baseline, that's my carbohydrates, right? Okay. And then I'm eating, I'm concentrating on animal fat meat. So like I'm fatty cuts of meat, dark meat and chicken, right. skin on chicken, drippings, making right. sure the white meat's in the drippings, right? Like thinking about 
chuck roast and ribeyes and T-bones and not like the lean cuts. Right. So you're getting a good fat profile because most people don't understand you that. Start, they start getting the risk of going overweight on protein because protein will break down into amino acids and through neoglucogenesis this will turn into carbs again. So I think But you that that's why you want to go for the fatty cuts yeah, because yeah, yeah. for instance a T-bone or a or a or a ribeye is one of the fattier cuts. 40% fat. And that pr fat profile is basically about half half monounsaturated fat and saturated fat. So having that 40% when you eat a 8 ounce steak, right? Then, you know, 3.2 ounces theoretically would be fat, sure. Fat. Yeah. Right. So you're really only eating, you know, five, 4 ounces of 5 ounces of steak. Right. Of actual protein. <laughs> so I think that that's where like a lot of people make a make some mistakes when they first do a ketogenic diet is they stay eating lean meat because right. they, they still eat too have too much protein. They're like, yeah, I need to eat like They still have protein. the fat paradigm in right. their head, right? right? And um, you can't be afraid of fat anymore. And and there's been over 100 studies now that have kind of discounted the whole diet heart hypothesis in recent times and right. we can't we don't have to be scared of saturated fat anymore. Yeah. So I, I don't want, I don't want to interrupt there with uh, I, I'm curious to hear the results of that trial with the keto adapted athletes versus the uh, the typical Western carb-heavy diet. So what what happened for that trial? So basically, they 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 did like you know muscle biopsies, cheek biopsies, uh, blood work, um, measured their VO2 max. They measured these guys up so they're really close in height, weight, body weight, uh, um, VO2 max, all those kind of things in both in the two groups. And then they just they did like. Um, a VO2 max test. They did a um, uh, a three hour fasted treadmill run. Um, they basically poked and prodded these guys for four or five days right. uh, in the lab and um, took you know fecal testing Mi matter, microbiome testing, yeah. all kinds of stuff just to see everything. So what they basically found <clears throat> was after no one had ever been at this at this point there had been no study done on athletes that had change their diet for more than 14 days. Yeah. Most the average was like 7 to 14 days, no more than 14 days. What we understand now in the science is like just to even open up the metabolic pathway takes 21 days. Yep. Right? To really open it up. And it really gets more efficient at like 8 to 12 weeks yeah. so just, and even more yeah, longer no, Absolutely. You do it. I think that one thing that is that you you're really shifting your biotechnology. So there's your your body's either optimizing for glycolysis, processing carbs or ketosis, processing fat into ketones and i think yes it, as you said it, it really does take your body you know up to a month six weeks to really start shifting the core you know metabolism to function better and optimize for certain metabolic substrates yeah absolutely so in this in this test th this was the first time they'd ever done it on very keto adapted athletes that have been doing a long time and have already gone through full adaptation right and and so in the measurement they found like uh the highest uh the highest in the carb group, so in the high carb group, the average was, I don't know, I can't remember exactly the average, but it was somewhere in like 0 .5, 0 0.7, maybe 0.5 grams per minute of burning fat. Pretty good fat adapted, right? We Most people are under 0 0.5. Mm -hmm. And um, the highest measure was maybe about, about one gram per minute. But in the fat adapted, keto adapted group, the most interesting thing was it was the lowest measured per minute of burning fat was higher than the highest in the carb, high carb group. Right. So it was over one gram per minute and the highest measure was 1.8 grams per minute. 
Um, before that, the science really said one gram, 1.1 grams per minute is the highest a human can achieve. In terms of burning fat into... In terms of burning fat per minute. Okay. <laughs> so that's where it was a full paradigm shift. And they also yeah. found that that VO2 max shifts too. So what our, our, our understanding previously in testing was like 65% was about the max where you shifted to burning full-on sugar, glycogen, what you're talking about, that 2,000 calories right. that we have stored. Like it shifts to burning sugar after 65% of VO2 max. Yep. What they found in this is the carb group was somewhere in around 55-60% when they shifted to burning carbs and primarily carbs. But right. the fat adapted group was in the 70 mid 70s percent. The highest was like right. 82% or something. Right. So 81 or 82 of VO2 max. That's like elite marathon race pace, huh. burning primarily 90 right. some percent onboard fat. And that's awesome, right? And that's so key because you have 100 times more calories stored in fat. Like if you're going to do this kind of endurance ultra marathon running, you got to be fat adapted then. Well, you, it, I mean, it makes sense because right, we have 2000 calories on board, you know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours worth of effort of glycogen to burn before we have to start bringing in exogenous calories, right? right. Some kind of carbohydrate to keep us going and keep the brain from shutting down because the brain needs glucose. So, or ketones, uh, but if you're not, or, or ketones, if you're not fat adapted, you're not giving it ketones. Right. So the, the, uh, um, a 7% body fat elite athlete has 40,000 onboard fat calories to tap into versus 2,000 sure. of sugar, right? right? So and even 7% would... is insanely lean. Like That's the average lean. American, I think, had 300,000 fat calories on board. So you literally have... On board, yeah. man. So we have plenty of calories. Yeah. And, and so once you can tap into that with a keto adaptation, <clears throat> where the biohack comes is this is where optimized fat metabolism comes in. This is where we start using strategic carbohydrates, dripping simple carbohydrates on an hourly basis like an IV drip right. to tell the brain it's okay, it's still burning ketones, but it also has a little bit of glucose drip <clears throat> to keep that body just saying, I'm, I'm good, everything's cool, and, and it, but then you don't have any GI stress because you're not throwing three, four, three or to 500 calories right. an hour at it. So I'm curious, I'm, I'm like when you're, when you're running, what, what VO2 max are you hitting, right? Because I think there is an interesting, I mean, nuance here is that when you're doing like 100% VO2 max, you have to be burning glucose. Like for anaerobic, like sprints and Absolutely. lifts, you need glucose there. So this like fat adaptation or ketones is not like this magic thing that makes you Superman. I mean, it has to be in, in very nuanced cases. So I'm, I'm curious, have you measured, you know, what zone do you try to stay in, in, in your aerobic threshold when you're, when you're doing 100 milers? I'm pretty much trying to stay like in the mafetone somewhere in the mafetone or modified mafetone method, which is 180 minus your age. Okay. If you've been training for a long time, you can add plus five or 10, okay. depending on how long you've been doing. So I find that if, if I stay in kind of that aerobic, right around that aerobic ceiling, right. I can go above that aerobic ceiling for a little while here and there into interval, like 20, 30 minute sessions, and then come back down and be okay. Right. Um, I found I can do it more after fat adaptation. Okay. I can stay in that higher zone i can go up to a higher vo2 max longer right because theoretically without... your aerobic threshold has went up because you're more fat adapted and your weight goes down because especially if you're a 45 year old runner and who's eating a high carb diet i'd say i don't know just by 
my own visual data of <laughs> right. being at races, right. the average masters runner has a little spare tire. Wow. And even if they're an elite runner, like when I was running constantly, I still had a little bit around the middle and I, that wouldn't quite go away. I mean, if you looked at me with my shirt off, I'm, everybody'd be like, oh, he's in really good shape. But knowing the body, it's like, you know, I got a little extra there and it was all around in the core section where it's where you don't want to have it, right? It's yeah. where they say it's the most unhealthy in a male is through like the top of your quads to like the bottom of your chest. And so just a little, and, and I found that it was harder and harder to get to race weight in, in every season right. as I got older. So um, on this, it's just like you, I dropped eight pounds. And I, I mean, strength to weight ratio goes way up. And when you're an elite athlete and you can drop eight pounds, it's your strength amazing. to weight ratio yeah. goes way it's, up. It's like that means five to ten percent. Yeah, it's five to ten percent. You know, yeah, that, that's a big amount of weight. It doesn't yeah. sound like a lot for like, but like normal try, people. But yeah, if you're like yeah. 150 pounds optimized, try strapping pounds. a four pound like sandbag onto each foot and going for a jog. Like. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, the beauty of it is that it's easy to stay in race weight. Um, your your VO2 max should go up on this diet, right? You know, on on this lifestyle change. Um, and um, the other thing that's probably the the most uh, I know we're getting off track because we're not really talking about faster study anymore. But the the beauty of this, this thing is it's yeah. it's recovery goes changes so much, and especially when you're a masters runner plus forty, you know, forty plus like I am, that's what you notice the most is you don't recover from the efforts you used to, like you used to. Yep. Yeah, there's very interesting data with elevated ketone levels uh, being, you know, basically lowering inflammation markers versus glucose. So a lot of emerging data around how ketones are, yeah, essentially what we're talking about. Like when you're burning ketones, you don't generate lactic acid, where if you're anaerobically processing glucose, you're generating a bunch of lactic acid. So in terms of recovery, there's a lot of emerging science there. As you're yeah, the respiratory quotient on burning fatty acids, burning or burning glucose is pretty interesting because <clears throat> you know it's one to one ratio. If you're burning glucose, it's a one to one ratio. You know, you you burn a, a unit of oxygen and you kick out a u- unit of CO2, yep. right? So there's that lactic acid. You get a little more acidic. The system goes a little more kit- tips towards the acidic, and you're trying to get rid of that lactic acid. Whereas if you're burning fat fats, that fuel source is way more efficient. It's a one to one on average 0.75 ratio. That means for one unit of oxygen, you're only kicking out 0.75 of CO2, which means the theory behind the fat adaptation model is that we're doing less oxidative stress over the long term of the event. I'm taking half the calories I used to in a hundred miler and I have 2200s over a hundred ultra marathons as a high carb athlete to compare it to. And it's night and day. The recovery is night and day. I have to, I, I can take, less than half of what I used to per hour during an event of exogenous carbohydrate. Right. So it's it's really a pretty sweet model because all of a sudden you don't have to carry as much, you don't have GI stress because you're yeah. not like pushing down an extra two or 300 calories an hour down your gut sure. yeah. and, so, and asking I, it to like break it down. You no, know, yeah, you're yeah. talking about exogenous carbohydrates. So we've been looking a lot at exogenous ketones, the interesting intervention for performance enhancement. So what is your experience with like exogenous ketones? Have you looked into that at all as a part of your routine? I have. I, I messed around with Keto OS um, okay. a little at Western States last year. And um, and I I found that I couldn't do the the stuff with MCT powder because the fat was too heavy. It comes in too heavy when you're in, in like a, a stressful race situation yeah. where the body's like, I'm just trying to break food down and get it through the gut right. wall, right? So... Um, 
and get it to the bloodstream so can, we can use it. So I, I found that using it strategically in a few spots was really good because it's, you know, it, it helps. Um, I, I found like it was, it helped. Okay. Um, that's my only experience with it. Um, I do know that with testing it, here's, this is an interesting thing to throw out there for people who are messing around who are already keto adapted or on a ketogenic diet and are messing around with exogenous ketones is that one thing that's interesting is if you're watching your ketone levels and you're seeing if you're in nutritional ketosis, I find that when you do take exogenous ketones, your natural ketone production plummets. So it replaces your natural uh, so that's that's one thing out there for yeah, me. There's like, some subtlety there, yes, because you, if yeah. you have elevated exogenous ketones, then your body's like, hey, we, we, we're already deep into ketosis. We don't need to do fat breakdown for more ketones. So it inhibits natural lipolysis and endogenous production. But it, but it's sort of a balance, right? Like for a lot of ketone salts like keto OS, you don't elevate your beta hydroxybutyrate levels that much. Right. But I, I feel like yeah. it, it has a place as a tool. Right. So, like, you know, how to use it. I haven't really figured out how to use it yet. Like, I think strategically during a race, probably, so that way you're getting a, you are burning ketones already. I'm just wondering, I'd like to.